If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms this morning. Psalm 2. What's wrong with the world? I don't mean give me examples. I'm not looking for stories from the news or illustrations from social media or the entertainment industry or even personal anecdotes. I'm not, I'm not interested in the visible evidence that something is wrong in the world. I'm asking the question fundamentally, what is wrong with the world? What is its fundamental problem? And in figuring that out, is there a solution? Is there a way for the world to be better than it is? Is there a way for the world to change, to even be what God designed it to be? Last week we looked at Psalm 1, and in doing so we said that together, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 form a double introduction to the entirety of the book of Psalms. Like twin doors on the outside gate, you must pass through these Psalms before you enter the hole. Why? Because the compiler of the Psalter has so designed it that you will only rightly understand the rest of the book, Psalms 3 through 150, if you first understand Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They are the grid through which all of the rest that follows will make sense. And while Psalm 1 presented us with an individual decision that had to be made, Psalm 2 does no less, but it puts it on a grand scale. It puts it on the level of corporate peoples, of entire nations, and the decision that they must come to before God. That's what we see in Psalm 2, and it's also here that we see the answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? So let's look to God's word and see what he says. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God this morning. Psalm 2 points us to the kingship of God over all the nations. And here we see what's wrong with the world in that we want to reject that kingship of God over our lives. But to reject that kingship is only to bring judgment upon ourselves. And yet, God says there is a way of escape. There is a solution to the problem of the world, the problem of our own hearts. There is a way to have joy in this life to be rightly related to God. In Psalm 2, David says that we must acknowledge the kingship of God, that we must humbly submit to His authority, to bow the knee to the Lord and to His anointed. And only then will we escape the perishing that is to come. So let's walk through the psalm and understand why these things are true and how they ought to be true in our lives. 
there are uh, four clear stanzas to this psalm. In the first, we see the rebellion of the nations. The rebellion of the nations. The psalm begins with a question. Why? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why are they raging against the Lord and His anointed? David, who the New Testament tells us is the author of this psalm, is describing a rebellion, a revolt against the Lord from all the nations of the earth. And notice who is leading this rebellion. It is the kings of the earth, those that are rulers in the world. Those who are in authority over others are leading the resistance against God and His authority. In Psalm 1, the righteous person, uh, person rather, meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. Here, these people meditate on their plans to revolt. That word plot in verse 1 is the same Hebrew word as meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2. They are meditating. They are thinking about how do we get away from the authority of God. Their wickedness, therefore, is seen in that their mind is not consumed with obedience with delight in the Lord, but with plotting to disobey. They reject His law and His rule rather than rejoicing in it. And that's what we see in verse 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is how they view the Lord's authority. This imagery of bonds and cords is that of a yoke put on an animal to pull a cart or a plow. This week I saw uh, on a website about strange things from history, a man riding a cart attached to a hippopotamus, riding through the center of town in the, in the late 1800s. And I thought, why? Nevertheless, that's the kind of mental imagery that the kings have. Perhaps they see themselves as a majestic horse, perhaps a donkey. But this is how they view God's authority over them as a burden, as a yoke, and they are struggling to break free. They pull and yank, desperately trying to be rid of his authority. Some of you know Paul Tripp. He's a famous counselor and author, and he talks about the fact that when he was young, he uh, made ends meet by being a kindergarten teacher many, many years ago. And he tells a story in one of his uh, books about a little girl named Susie whose mom wanted to bring in treats for the daughter's birthday. Now, um, I thought it was interesting that when our kids are going to school, now everything is kind of ramped up to the next level. Um, you know, we are celebrating now kindergarten graduation, uh, primary school graduation, you know, as if this is like the, the end of all things. They've reached the pinnacle of their life. And I'm kind of scratching my head saying, yeah, it, trust me, it's going to get it's going to get more important as years go on. But, but this mom went full out. He said it was a birthday kingdom for this little Susie in the class. Here's what he says. There was a long table going down the middle of the classroom. At the end of the table was Susie, birthday girl. She had an amazing pile of presents in front of her, stacked so high you could barely see her face. All her classmates sat around the table admiring Susie's stack of presents while looking at their own little sandwich bag of party favors. One boy didn't appreciate the disparity in the gifts. He began to sulk, folding his arms, getting angrier and angrier. He began to... Even louder, looking at this little bag of Tootsie Rolls while looking at the great mound of gifts for Susie. Eventually, one of the other moms that was there to help with the party came around and looked this little boy in the eye and said, Listen, it's not your party. It's not your party. 
We're not here to celebrate you. This is not about you. This is about her today. And these kings are like that little boy at the party. They think it's their party. They think the world in which they live is theirs. They think they know best. They think the Lord's law is not worth obeying, that it is foolishness rather than wisdom. They think they should rule unfettered by God. And David sits on his throne and looks out to the nations and he diagnoses this as their central problem. They want to be king rather than acknowledge that the Lord is king. He saw it in his day, as Tom Schreiner points out in his sermon on this passage, it's not hard to see this today either. The nations have not stopped raging from David's day till today. Consider Europe and the wonderful Christian heritage that exists there. Uh, is there a church there today? Yes, the gospel is still there. But so many churches are closing their doors. Now you're just as likely to find a pub or some other uh, store in an old church building as a gathering of God's people on a Sunday morning. He says that there's even a recent uh, history of Europe that's coming out, a book, of, a book of history on Europe that he had a pre-publication copy to read, and he was astonished that in a history of Europe, there was no mention of Christianity at all. None. I mean, nothing about the rise of Catholicism, of the Protestant Reformation, the religious conflict in Ireland. Nothing. No mention of Christianity. Of course, we also think of Islamic nations, which certainly do not prize the Lord or the reign of His anointed. Anyone, who's not, anyone who, who does appreciate those things, who does believe is mistreated or killed. We know that China regulates the church and persecutes those who desire to worship freely underground. Even Israel today is by no means friendly to the preaching of the gospel. And in our country, we're not much different either. Much of society resists any influence of Christianity. Even one of the major presidential candidates coming up says that for the good of this country, for the good of society, certain peoples will have to forego their religious traditions and beliefs. The nations are raging against the authority of God, against His kingship over their lives. They do not want God to rule over them. And it might be easy to look out at the world's leaders and see that sin, but let's not let ourselves off the hook all that quickly. We are prone to do the same thing, aren't we? Aren't we prone in this life, in our own little patch of reality, to be like that boy at the party? To be mad when it's not all about us. When it's not all about us. To huff and puff, wanting our way, pouting when we don't get it. Maybe even we rage and get angry. It wouldn't be surprising because that kind of resistance comes from a heart of sin. And it's an affliction that we all share. We all struggle. We all have the sinful heart. Yet for all the raging and rebelling, the question is still asked, why? Why do the nations do this? Why do the kings do this when it is an utterly foolish endeavor? That's what we see in verses 4 through 6. The foolishness of this by way of the response from heaven. The response from heaven. In light of all the raging and rebellion, David says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Don't miss the irony here. The most powerful men in the world are plotting together against the Lord. And what is the Lord's response? He laughs at them. That is not a good sign for those rebelling. James Johnson points out that this quote is the only place in the Bible where it says that God laughs. When a creature shakes his fist at the creator, it is so ridiculous the 
that laughter is the only response. All their plotting and raging is going nowhere. Nothing they dream up is going to succeed. Their plotting is futile. At the end of the day, it will not succeed. God doesn't fear their rebellion. He is not threatened by their revolt. In fact, he mocks them. He holds them in derision. Sadly, as I thought about that, it reminded me of a time when I played football in junior high. At the time, I was going to a small Christian school, and rather than play other schools our own size, we just played all the other private schools. And there was one school in particular that was quite large compared to ours. By way of example, on our football team, if you were on the team, you played offense and defense every play unless you were injured. That's, the, the, that's, that's just the way it did. Uh, you were tired after those games. Uh, this team that we played, they had three strings of players, and this was just in seventh grade football. And I remember being on the line, uh, one of the very first plays, and looking at this guy in the face across from me, uh, at least 50 pounds heavier than I was, not a bit of it fat, all muscle, a full foot and a half taller than me, and, 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 and the, 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 they're about to call hike, and he just looks at me and starts laughing. He, he knows this is a joke. And in fact, after the hike was called, I was somehow woke up, as it were, on my side with mud on my face, wondering what in the world happened, uh, suddenly realizing the QB had just been sacked. We were no threat to this team, and the end blowout result was obvious of that. At the same time, these kings are plotting against the Lord. You, you think about the, 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 the kind of backroom deals that, that take place even now among world leaders as they're planning and plotting against others and ensuring their own safety and the most powerful men of the world. And God looks down and says, are you kidding me? Is this a joke? Do, do, do you really think that you're going to stop me? Do you think you're going to do something to thwart my plans? You're down on the earth. Where do I rule from? From heaven itself. You can't even approach my throne. What makes you think I would be scared of you? They're like ants running around and the God is looking down off the celestial edge of his throne saying, what in the world do you think you're doing? Now make no mistake, these wicked rulers are accomplishing things in the world, even terrible things. Recent news reports bear that out. But they never threaten the kingship of God. Moreover, for all the ridiculousness that is their rebellion, this is not a joke to the Lord. Notice in verse 5 that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God never takes sin lightly. Here David says that when he speaks, it will be in wrath and that his fury will terrify these rebels. The Lord is holy and is therefore justified in his anger against any who would rebel against him. Do we understand that today? Do we understand that rebellion against God is a defiance against reality itself? It doesn't matter if it's the kings who rule nations or if it's us in our home. If we are seeking to live contrary to God's design, then it's against, it's against the design of creation and reality itself. It is the most backwards, inverted thing we could possibly do. It distorts the order established by the one who created all things. It turns a blind eye to the beauty of God and spits in his face, dragging his glory through the mud. Mothers, ever think about or come across someone who's bullied your young child, not just picked on them, truly and sincerely bullied them. 
Do you remember the emotional mixture of anger and revulsion and indignity and fury that you felt? Magnify that about a billion times and you're getting a sense of the sheer sinfulness of of sin and God's response to it. These rulers are planning evil things and the Lord displays a righteous, holy fury against their sin. What is God's response? He says, for all your plotting, for all your conniving, for all your power, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's interesting that near the end of his reign, around 305 AD, Emperor Diocletian had two massive pillars built in Spain which declared his victory over the Lord Jesus Christ. The inscription of those pillars read, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augusti, for having adopted Galerius in the east, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. I have triumphed over Christianity, and here is my testament to my accomplishment. Seven years later, Constantine ascends the position of emperor, and Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. He had conquered nothing. God's king is set on Zion, on his holy hill, and he will rule and reign. David was established on an earthly Zion in Jerusalem and reigned from the holy hill of God. But as we'll see in a minute, David is looking forward to something even greater, a greater Zion, a greater king. We have to stop here and just acknowledge that as God's people, our confidence must always rest in God alone. If we are to look to the prevailing winds of culture and society and the shifting sands of political power, we will forever be disappointed. We will forever be let down. God alone reigns supreme. Moreover, as the church lives and serves, it is under the reign of God's King, that is Christ. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 9. The reign of the King. The reign of the King. Notice the speaker changes. Now here it is the Lord himself who speaks, and David tells us about it. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David says, this is something that God decreed. When did he decree it? Does it sound familiar? It should. In 2 Samuel 7, we see that God establishes his covenant with David. He says, unlike Saul who rebelled, who like the nations raged against me, would not obey me, and therefore the kingdom was ripped out of his hand and was given to you, I will never take the kingdom away from you, David. In fact, I establish with you a dynasty that will go on forever. If there's ever a king in Israel, it will be one of your sons sitting on the throne wearing the crown. I will adopt him as my son. When he strays and disobeys, I will correct him. And when he comes back to me, I will bless him. But notice the description of the king's reign. God will make nations his heritage, the ends of the earth his possession. Now, first of all, what does that sound like? Something even before David, it sounds like God's covenant with Abraham. The Lord blessed him and said that I will make you a great blessing so that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When we stand back for just a minute, the larger picture of Scripture, we see that part of the way God fulfilled His promises to Abraham was through His promises to David. This is how I'm going to make Abraham's line 
a blessing to all the nations. But look again at the more specific description. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make your nations, your heritage, the ends of earth, your possession. That kind of global reign isn't something David came close to experiencing. Did he have safety and security from Israel's enemies? Yes, but reigning over all nations? There's only one king who does that, and that's the Lord Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus' baptism, doesn't it? Where God speaks down from heaven, this is my beloved son. Or again, when he is transfigured, when the veil of humanity is pulled back just a bit and the disciples catch the smallest glimpse of his glory, what do they say they hear? But God from heaven speak down, this is my beloved son. And then in Acts 13, Paul is preaching about Jesus and he talks about Jesus dying for sin and about him being raised back to life. And when he talks about the resurrection of Christ, he quotes from Psalm 2 and says, this is what was said of Christ at his resurrection. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The sonship in view here is, relation, is not relational but functional. Though Jesus has always been the son of God, it was at his resurrection and ascension that God established him and installed him as the ruler over all nations. That's the reason why when Jesus says in his great commission, make disciples of all nations, why? Because I have authority over all nations. I have authority over all things. And in Acts, as we'll see very shortly, when, when God says, or when the risen Christ says to his disciples, I want the gospel to go from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why? Because that is the kingdom that God has given his son Christ, the very ends of the earth. All the nations are given to him to rule over. And so in this way, Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to David and to Daniel's vision of the Son of Man who reigns over all things in Daniel 7. And how shall he rule the nations? The Lord says to his anointed, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Think about that imagery. Think about something that can be fashioned into something so beautiful, clay, molded and fired and painted and glazed into either something functional like a cup or a bowl or something beautiful like a vase that would sit and brighten up a room. But oh, how fragile that piece still is. You think about a, a steel rod can reduce the glory of that thing to shattered pieces on the floor. Same God that controls the weather outside controls the nations and will one day bring judgment upon them for their sin. How much more the rulers of the earth who seem to wield such tremendous power over entire peoples, establishing monuments to their name and legacy, pushing the bounds of civilization, trying in their minds to make something better than what came before. And yet because of their wicked rebellion, God says, I will reduce them to shattered pieces of clay across the earth. Judgment will fall and it will be swift and it will come to the hand of Christ. But here's the good news. That day has not yet come. That day of judgment has not yet fallen. And so the psalm ends with a call for us to enter into the refuge of the blessed. The refuge of the blessed in verses 10 through 12. Notice the voice of the psalm shifts again. After everything that has been said, David now tells you, here's how you ought to respond. Here's what you ought to do with everything that I've told you. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, 
serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm ends with a gospel call. It's a call of good news to, the, to those who are rebels and who are wicked rulers who refuse the Lord. Why? Because he says it's not too late to escape the judgment that's going to come. Jesus' first coming was a day of salvation, a coming in humility and service. But his second coming will be a day of judgment. But the second day is not here yet. Today, the Lord is still patient with sinners. Don't miss that. The psalmist says that those, uh, those who are wicked and insane in their rebellion against God deserve to be shattered like pieces of pottery. But God doesn't do it. He holds back His wrath. In mercy, He is patient. He has fixed a day, and until that day, He gives time for those wicked people to repent and to turn away from their sin. What does that repentance look like? Two things, according to this psalm. First, we are called to serve the Lord with fear. That may not be very appealing to those who are used to being served. But notice how David describes it. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Though in sin we think that serving the Lord is, is oppressive to us, David says it's freeing. It brings joy to your heart. So the kind of fear here that he's talking about is not a pagan kind of fear. The pagans feared their gods because they believed that unless the gods were appeased, they would be unhappy and curse those that worshipped them. And this is a different kind of fear. Think about being a rock climber and about going perhaps even solo on your first big climb up a sheer side of a cliff. And in those, in those final moments, those kind of final feet of your climb before you reach the top, when your muscles are on fire and your heart is beating out of your chest and, and, and you're frankly a little afraid because of how high up you are, but your hand grips that top and pulls yourself up and you set and you survey this amazing, majestic view of what you have accomplished, there is a certain kind of fear that comes over you. A certain kind of awe-filled joy that permeates your existence in that moment as you realize what, what has been accomplished and where you're at and what that means. It's not a fear that paralyzes you, but moves you profoundly. That's what this kind of fear is. Serving the Lord, knowing that you have been redeemed from your sin to fulfill the very purpose for which you've been created. The whole time you're thinking, why me, O oh Lord? Why should I find such mercy and grace before you? And there is a kind of fearfulness, a quiet, moving fear that goes down to the core of your being and it leads us to serve with rejoicing. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. But we almost also kiss the sun. This is a sign of homage to the Lord's anointed. I'm sure we've all seen those movies or television shows where uh, the, the, the king or the leader is there, perhaps even sitting on his throne. Someone comes in for an audience. and The first thing they do is bow, perhaps kissing his hand or, or, or a signet ring, the sign of his power, or perhaps even kissing his feet. To, to kiss the sun, his feet or his hands is to bow in submission before him. This is what it means in God's eyes to repent of our sin. And this idea of serving and submission is how we find refuge in Christ. To turn to the Lord and His anointed, knowing that we will find safety 
and security under his reign, not judgment, not perishing. Now this Christ-centered understanding is crucial of Psalm 2. If we're not only going to understand this psalm, but the book of Psalms and the scriptures as a whole. First of all, Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And the apostles always quoted in reference to Christ. The apostles read this and they said, this is about Jesus. Why do they think that? Well, I think they thought that because I think David himself thought that. I don't think, as some will say, David is writing Psalm 2 thinking this is all about him and the promises that God has made to him. No, I think that even the way that the the king is described as the anointed, a word which can be used to describe really lots of different kinds of God's servant in the Old Testament, but is most often the way that the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah, of the Christ. I think David is specifically writing in anticipation of that final fulfillment of God's covenant promises to him. I think David himself is thinking about the time when his perfect, final, ultimate son will come, sit on his throne, and rule and reign over all things according to God's decree. And so the one who put this psalm together the whole book of Psalms together, rather, put Psalm 2 here strategically at the beginning. Because what he is saying is, if you are to be wise, if you are to understand who God is and how you ought to respond, then you must first come to grips with his, his authority and the promise of his anointed, the promise of his Messiah. In book one, we see instruction about being in blessed and not perishing. What do we see in Psalm 2? What it means to be blessed and not perish. How are we to be blessed in Psalm 1? By rejecting the sinful ways of the world and by meditating day and night on the word of God. And what should we see when we meditate on the word of God? Psalm 2 tells us the reign of God over all things and the coming of his anointed. Here in Psalm 2, we're told that if we're going to be blessed, we must take refuge in the Son. What happens if we don't? We perish. We perish. David says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If we reject this joy of serving and submitting to Christ, then we will perish in the last day. The raging of the lamb is far greater than the raging of the nations. So David says, Be wise. <laughs> don't be an idiot. Don't be foolish like the rulers of the nations and think somehow you can thumb your nose at God, that you can rebel against his authority, that like a mad donkey, you can kick against the yoke, that somehow you're going to be free. It's just utter foolishness. Be wise, listen, be warned. Turn to the Lord and his anointed. Find forgiveness. In the fullness of time, we see that that forgiveness, that refuge comes because Christ took our punishment upon himself. He died to save us, and so our cross became his. But God raised that son, that Messiah, that Christ from the dead, and established him in heaven. And now that son reigns over all things, but he's still the humble king. One who is not yet exercising the full authority of his reign. So there's still time to turn and not perish, but to find refuge in him. Dick McClellan was an Australian man who went to Ethiopia as a missionary. And in his book, recounting his experiences there, he tells the story of a witch doctor named Osina and a slave called Gabre who arrived at his mission home wanting to know if McClellan himself was the Jesus they had heard of. They'd heard this garbled mixture of a message of rumor and error, and they'd arrived at a time when there was uh, terrible storms damaging homes all throughout the area of Ethiopia. 
and they wanted to know if what they were hearing was true. A native evangelist arrived at McClellan's place, and so for the better part of two days and three nights, McClellan and this local evangelist sought to make clear the gospel story and the truth about who Jesus was. Rosina and Gabriel both believed and came to faith in Christ. And McClellan says in order to acknowledge and confess that faith, they stood before a small group of believers in, in that part of Ethiopia. They held up their right hands as a sign of an oath, and they renounced Satan blood sacrifices, evil practices, and all their sins. But then McClellan writes, they raised both hands high and said, having renounced Satan and believing in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died for me, I take him as my Savior with two hands and I will never deny him. In that culture, to have two hands raised was a sign of complete surrender. It's the same as kissing the Son. And that's the words that we need to hear today. That's the word of the Lord for us. Serve Him. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in the Messiah King, not with one hand, but with two. Father, we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful, Lord, for the salvation that He gives, and we're thankful for His benevolent reign. Father, in an age that is marked by liberty, that prides itself on individuality and no one being able to tell us what to do because of the freedoms we have, we so often struggle with a message of authority, even Christ's authority. Father, we pray that we would be humble, that we would not be foolish, but with great wisdom we would see the reign of your anointed, of your son Jesus, as a a way to be blessed by you as a means of having joy in this life and the life to come. Father, as we embark on this journey through the Psalms, help us to take seriously this message of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the way of blessing versus the way of perishing, the way of righteousness versus the way of wickedness. God, may we meditate day and night on your law, and there may we find this reality that you reign and that you have provided a refuge for sinners through your Son. Father, we ask these things in His name. Amen.